0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com So Luke 19, we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 48. This is commonly called the triumphal entry.
1: Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. Let me read. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to
0: Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Rebuke your disciples, and he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you. And hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people
1: were hanging on his words. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning, amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning on this Palm Sunday, the annual celebration of your entry into Jerusalem. and. We've read the text. We've read the story. Lord, we want to ask now that you would come and in some regard make a triumphal entry into spaces of our hearts this morning. Or that
0: your spirit would be powerfully present, that you would open up some of the dark spaces of our hearts, some of the, the places where there's some closed doors and dark corridors, so to speak, that you would come and ride triumphantly into those spaces and do a transformative work in us. or that You would help us to hear from You. To hear what You would say to us if You rode into town today. Trust that You'll do that and then some. In Jesus' name, everybody said Amen. So I often wonder uh, what Jesus would say if He uh, rolled into town today. You ever, you ever wonder that? If Jesus just like showed up what he would say to all of us. He just came walking through those doors right now. Um, I don't know how much listening would be taking place by us. I might be more like face first on the ground in front of him maybe, but I, just, I, I often envision what it would be like if he like, you know, rolled into our church gatherings or into our city or into our, our homes even, um, what he would say. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the day when the church historically celebrates Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. It's it's kind of an episode that's always fascinated me a little bit um, when I read it, um, because it's referred to as His triumphal entry, right? When I think about that, the image that I get, like a triumphal entry is something that seems to be reserved for warriors or or kings who are returning from battle, right? And they've they're they're they've been victorious over their enemies. They're they're ready for a massive celebration as they come back to town. And if you think about the story of Jesus a little bit and kind of where we're at in the story of the Gospels, um, Jesus has been out and about. I mean, we're we're ending we're coming to the end of the Gospels, right? Uh, the Gospel of Luke and. Up until this point throughout the narrative, if you've ever read one of the Gospels, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you, you know, prior to this day, um, Jesus has been out and about. He's been ministering in the surrounding communities, so you know, he's been out in Blue Hill and, and been out in Harvard, and I don't know why you'd go to Junietta, but he, I'm kidding, but he did. Rumble, so on, so he's been out and about in those surrounding communities, and People in Jerusalem, so to speak, if we can kind of capture that. um, They've been hearing about him. Hearing about what he's been doing. And and, and for Jews, for for Israelites, they they had dreamed about this day when this Messiah would come. Rescue them from their oppressors. They've been looking forward to it. It's, it's, It's the classic movie, period. Every movie you see has this element of
1: the rescuer somewhere in it. I think that comes out of our deep longing for a rescuer. This is what Jesus
0: has been doing, though. He's been surrounding all, he's been been ministering to all the surrounding communities around Jerusalem. Think of some of the things he's been doing. He's been healing the sick, right? He's been giving sight to the blind. These are miraculous things. He's been making the lame people to walk. He's even been raising some people from the dead. You've been hearing this seeing this on your news channels, so to speak, your news feeds. and Now he's coming to town. And he's arriving in Jerusalem in this story just like a victorious warrior
1: king. Because you think about that story, right, he's been victorious over all those things. Um, The lame, the deaf, so on and so forth. He's been doing things that nobody else could do. Riding
0: into town victorious. Yet we know the narrative, right? Less than a week from now, he's, like, it seems like the script's going to completely flip. He's going to suffer terribly at the hands of his enemies. He's going to die a sinner's death on a cross that was meant for common criminals. What happens over the course of the coming week is it's going to appear as though this victorious warrior king is a fraud. That's the way it's going to look come Friday. It's going to look like he was a fraud who died a common criminal. He's going to come into Jerusalem today on Palm Sunday, the, the victorious warrior king, to shouts and praises of his followers who have been watching what he's been doing. And in less than a week, everybody around him is going to be saying, crucify him. And all of his disciples are going to abandon him and reject him. And one's going to deny him completely, right? Turn him over. The script is going to completely flip. We know that. We know that that's what takes place over the course of the next week. But we also know that that, that's not, that's the apex of the story in some regard. Because the apex of the story is sandwiched right in between or kind of wrapped up between uh, Good Friday, right? And Sunday morning where you have the horror of the cross, this bloody, gruesome, brutal, horrific thing that happens on Friday. That thing that, that provides salvation for sinners, that is not the end of the story. That gets ratified by what takes place on Sunday when they find the tomb empty, right? So we know, today standing here and and examining this story, we kind of know the story. Beautiful thing. So the triumphal entry of Jesus on Palm Sunday, I think, is about so much more than his victories in his public ministry up until this point. It's actually, I think,
1: a foreshadow of what's going to take place a week from today on Resurrection Sunday. So with all that in your minds, right? Get some of that context built, I want you to return
0: to that original question. What do you think Jesus would say if he rolled into town today? If he he rolled into our churches, if he rolled into our communities, our homes? And I'm just going to lay my cards on the table and and say I, I think that some of the things that he says in the text that we just read are some of the things that he would say to us today. I think he would say, do not remain silent. I think he would say, understand the cost of peace. And I think he would say, drive out the thieves among you. Pretty basic, pretty simple. I want to look at them each one at a time. First, I think he would say, do not remain silent. When you look at the text, right, verses 28 through 40, what does Luke tell us? He tells us that Jesus sent two of his disciples to find a donkey. What's a donkey? Well, it's a beast that's designed to carry a, bur- a burden, right? Um, and there's lots that we could uh, dive into uh, throughout this. We're just really looking for what Jesus said and how that would translate to today. But he sends his disciples to find the donkey. It's a beast that's designed to carry a burden that had never been ridden. So you could say an unbroken donkey. Um, I don't know if you ever run rode an unbroken animal period, but an unbroken donkey, they're stubborn. Uh, I rode unbroken horses before. An unbroken donkey doesn't sound like... Sounds like a wild ride. He sends his disciples to get this donkey so that he can ride it in Jerusalem as the victorious king. And he goes up and over the Mount of Olives and as he's riding down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, all of his followers are following him. If you can envision the situation, envision what's going on, all of his followers are, are right along with him and they're, they're rejoicing loudly, right? They're, they're praising God because of everything that they had witnessed in Jesus' ministry. And What are they saying? Look at, look at what they're saying. They're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This, this is... A, this is an awesome praise and worship gathering that's moving down the side of the mountains the way I envision it. And as that's taking place, as that's happening, some of the local religious leaders, if you haven't figured it out yet in the scriptures, the religious leaders are the bad guys. Okay? If you go back to all the ways we tell stories in movies, the good guys are the guys with the white hats, the bad guys are the guys with the black hats. These are the bad guys. Um, Today, the way we tell a story, it's kind of flipped and changed. We oftentimes make the guys with the black hats the good guys. I don't know how we do it, but we do. In this case, religious leaders, they got the black hats on, the bad guys. These local religious leaders, uh, they come to Jesus, and they're trying to get Jesus to silence the crowd. And you notice what Jesus says, right? He says, hey, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So again, think about what's happening here. Jesus riding into town is not only the current champ, he's been victorious in causing the deaf to hear, he's been causing the blind to see, he's been causing the lame to walk, he's been causing the sick to be healed, he's been causing the storms to cease, he's been causing the dead to rise again, just as the prophets had foretold. The reigning king of kings, the reigning Lord of lords, he's coming into town and his disciples are going absolutely ballistic.
1: They can't be silenced. Why? Because of what they witnessed. Think about that. They won't shut up. They can't be stopped because they've witnessed the miraculous. God's enemies want what God's enemies always want to silence God's people. Jesus says, hey, even if you could get them to remain silent, the stones would throw a rock concert. And he's not talking about the rolling stones. Stones would throw a rock concert, right? Which points to the fact that he is the king of kings and the Lord. of Lords. He's the creator. All of creation was designed to praise and worship the creator. We are silent. Creation will still worship. What did you think about this though? Can you imagine? Can you imagine this whole scene in silence? Can you imagine a victorious entry in silence? Seriously, just contemplate this with me for a minute. What would that feel like? Wouldn't feel very victorious, would it? I think it'd feel more like a funeral procession. Put it this way. Can you imagine
0: complete silence? Complete silence after witnessing a game winning
1: touchdown in the final seconds of the Super Bowl when your team was behind the whole time? the whole time? And you are like you just sitting there like it would never happen right it doesn't it doesn't happen that way that's not our
0: experience you can't imagine that kind of a scenario because in those moments of victory everyone gets lost in reckless abandon i was watching a video of a friend of mine a pastor in uh, near Kansas City and <laughs> during the super bowl this year and uh, they had a bunch of people in their basement, a bunch of people from their church and everything, and, like, they're, they're partying really good. I mean, they're all on their feet towards the end of that game, watching to see who's going to win. And, like, when a touchdown happened and, and the Chiefs, it was obvious the Chiefs were winning, like, they all start like, hugging each other really, really hard, and they're yelling, they're screaming, and they're, like, pushing each other around. And, and like, my buddy, my buddy Pastor, he, uh, he like, cut his forehead open. Um, I think one of the guys was holding a can of soda, And he, like, threw, I don't know what it was a can of, but he threw it up in the air, and I think it hit one of the ceiling fans, and it came back down, and it hit my buddy right in the front. So he's like, and there's like blood all over his face. I mean, looks like he's about to die, you know? This is that reckless abandon. It's that moment where you've been, you're all tensed
1: up, and you're like, ah. That's the moment. we We can't even comprehend.
0: Even for the most introvert, I mean, I'm the extrovert, my wife's the introvert, okay? When, when people get touchdowns, she jumps up and does a touchdown dance. Like it, it doesn't matter what personality you are. You can't imagine silence. If you never witnessed that, you should. It's fun. You can't imagine silence, though, in that moment of absolute,
1: unexpected victory. It's so the essence of worshiping Jesus is getting absolutely lost in reckless abandon
0: because you have personally experienced the power of the cross and the empty tomb in your life. Can I say this again? Because sometimes I think, I think what happens um, for us in in our lives.
1: and, And listen, worship is not just singing songs on Sunday morning. This is your life. This is your lifestyle living
0: wholeheartedly after God, desiring to bring attention to Him and His name alone in every aspect of your life. These are different ways that we would express what worship really is outside of just singing songs. But I can say this, um, folks who live their lives to worship God with their lives, when, when they sing on Sunday mornings, it, it's not timid. It's It's loud we bring attention to, to the person who has done things in our lives that we could not ever imagine. And what's happening in the moment of that experience is you are experiencing the, the magnificence of God, the greatness of God. It's, it's as though you're standing in front of the Grand Canyon as a little child for the first time. Something along those lines, so hard to wrap our minds around, I think, this picture. I think the essence of worshiping Jesus is absolutely getting lost and reckless abandon. It's it's moving away from sin and moving away from hiding and out into the open. And it's because you've personally experienced the power of the cross and the empty tomb in your life. Now these people hadn't experienced that yet. They'd experienced a tiny sliver of that power in Jesus' ministry up to this point. People who have experienced that power, the power of Jesus in their lives, they don't remain silent. Went to the gym this week. I've been trying to get back in the gym and get healthier. I don't care if this is public, but I, I mean, I, when I go to the gym, I want to get away from people. Okay, be honest, it's my, my time to like push out negative energy and deal with emotional stuff and get physically pumped up. Um, man, There's this guy. I'm walking on the treadmill, doing my thing. Usually 15 minutes on the treadmill is what I like to do, and I'm about 10 minutes in. And there's this guy on the treadmill next to me, and I see he's waving his arms, and he's talking to me. And I'm like, no way. I take off my earbuds. And I'm like, Joe, how are you doing? And I'm like, I don't even know who you are. Why are you talking to me? And Long story short, he's, he's a guy that, was, that, that I've rubbed shoulders with in the past. And
1: 20 minutes later, I'm still standing there, and he's still talking. <laughs> and... And this is
0: partially my own confession of my own selfishness because it's my time. Um, But
1: dude would not shut up about Jesus. Dude would not shut up about Jesus. I mean, that's that's all he wanted to do was testify to what God had been doing in his life over the last few years. People who have experienced the power of Jesus in their lives, they don't remain silent.
0: They speak... They praise, they worship because they've witnessed Jesus at work, opening their eyes, opening their ears, helping them to walk, healing their brokenness, restoring their love for God, setting them free from the shackles of sin and shame and guilt. If Jesus came to visit today, I think that's one of the things he would say, hey, don't remain silent. Second thing I think he would say is understand the cost of peace. Right? Understand the cost of peace. You look at verses 41 through 44, and Jesus is drawing near to the edge of Jerusalem, right? It's almost like He comes up over a little hill or something, and, and, and the entire city of Jerusalem becomes available to Him in His vision. He sees the city. He catches a glimpse of the city, and in that moment, he, he has an emotional breakdown right there. He has that emotional breakdown because He knows that His people have no clue about what it's going to take to make peace between them and God they're spiritually blind to their sin. They're spiritually blind to the holiness and the greatness of God. They, they have no clue about what's going to take place at the cross of Calvary in less than a week. They have no clue that their rejection of Jesus is going to result in future judgment and annihilation of the city as it gets destroyed in less than a few years. It's almost, I think, like Jesus is literally saying, hey, I, I wish you would have known I wish you would have known on this day the things that make for peace. Because you didn't know the time of your visitation. You didn't know who I was. You didn't recognize me as your suffering Savior because you did not trust and obey me. The day is coming when your enemies are going to surround you and they're going to destroy you right down to the last child. That's exactly what happens in a few years. It's almost as though Jesus is saying how I wish you could understand the cost of peace. I think it's somewhat easy, relatively easy for us to understand a longing for peace, isn't it?
1: You know what it's like to be conflicted, be down inside, be full of worry, doubt, fear. We know what it's like to live in a world that is constantly at war, a world
0: that is constantly divided, a world that is constantly arguing one that is constantly in turmoil. I think that the polarization in our world in recent years, what we are experiencing as as, as a human race, I think in the last few years, it feels like everything has shifted into overdrive, doesn't it? Maybe it's just that I'm getting older, but it feels like things have shifted into overdrive. I know every generation has said, hey, we're living in times such as we have never seen before, but
1: it feels from a human standpoint, like, that, like that's true. How beautiful would it be? How satisfying would it be if all of the animosity in our world, all of the
0: enemies in our world right now could find true peace with one another? I mean, I, I try to capture what true peace feels like. And maybe you have your own way that you experience that. For me, maybe it's 95 miles an hour on the back of my bike. Probably should confront me on that, I suppose. But for you, maybe it's uh, the cabin in the woods, or it's the lake, or it's the walk with the dog, or the friend. Or I don't know where your moments of peace are, where you find that. But I think all of us have our own
1: ways of escaping from the conflict and finding a moment of peace. How satisfying would it be to like, see that just across the world like that?
0: True peace. And, and I'm not talking about the kind of peace that we do experience in this life, like we just talked about. The kind of peace where that conflict gets set aside or the differences between enemies get set aside just for a, a brief moment or a short season and then you wind up taking up arms again or you wind up getting off the bike or getting away from the cabin and you come back to... All of the conflict and all of the turmoil and you're back in it again and you feel it tearing at your soul, right? It's not that kind of peace. It's not the kind of momentary peace
1: that I think we're talking about here in the text. I think Jesus is talking about the
0: kind of peace that absolutely completely dissolves all of the differences and all of the conflict, all of the turmoil for all of eternity. That's almost incomprehensible for us. I think we long for it, deep down inside. We, We were created
1: with a desire for that. It's a very godly desire. This is the kind of peace that Jesus says
0: he wishes his people understood. The kind of peace that has been eternally dissolved. That's the essence behind the language. This was written as he says it. It's the essence of the context of the story of where he's headed to the cross. He's not talking about peace between humans necessarily. Remember that. It's not necessarily what he's talking about, peace between you and I. Although that kind of peace horizontally between one another is definitely a result of the kind of peace he's talking about. Because the kind of peace that he's talking about is the kind of peace that happens between humans and God. And ultimately, he's talking about what it actually takes to make that kind of peace. You think of all the councils and counseling and drafting of peace treaties and all those things that would need to take place that never hold any water. Do a study on the Native American
1: Indians and you'll find it and see it. Think of what it takes to quote-unquote make peace between humans here, and you know it doesn't last. You look at what it
0: takes to make peace between humans and God, and you start to get a different picture of what true peace really is and what Jesus is talking about. Humanity's sin, our sin, your sin, my sin, it makes us enemies of God. And the only thing that's going to make peace between You and I and God, between humanity and God, is the cross of Calvary that's going to happen in less than a week. The cross of Calvary doesn't just take the conflict that is existing between our sin and God's perfection, His holiness, and His righteousness. It doesn't just take that kind of conflict and that turmoil between those two things, between perfection and the outright war we make against our perfect Creator. It doesn't just take that conflict and like set it aside for a few moments in the back room so that we can enjoy one another for dinner and then go back to war again the very next day. That's not the kind of peace that's being provided. The cross of Calvary is like a spiritual weapon that completely vaporizes the presence and the power and the penalty of our sin. And then, it, and then at the same time, it translates all of Christ's perfect holiness, right? He, he, he took all of our sin and the penalty and the presence of it and the power, and He took it upon Himself at that cross as though all of God's wrath, His complete just wrath was laid upon the back of Jesus as He died. And in that moment, He's then translating all of that righteousness and holiness and perfection upon filthy old you and I.
1: As we place our faith in Him. And don't forget that even that faith is a gift from God. (laughs) All of that's happening so that we can sit at the same dinner table with our good Father in heaven for all of eternity in an inseparable relationship of unconditional love. I think if Jesus wrote in here today, I think he would say, hey man, I hope you understand the cost of peace. Because it cost him his life. Third thing that I notice uh, in the
0: text, that I think Jesus would say is, I think he would say, "Drive out the thieves among you." Drive out the thieves among you. Look at verses forty-five through forty-eight. As Luke tells us, tells us that when Jesus does arrive in Jerusalem, he goes into the temple. What does he find there? Finds a bunch of thieves selling stuff for a major profit. And when he finds them, he drives them out. And what does he say? Most of us have probably heard this before.
1: It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And then what does he do? It's not just like mic drop and walk out the door. Okay, Although it's, it's a mic drop moment for sure.
0: Luke tells us that he proceeds to teach daily in the temple as the religious leaders look for ways to destroy him, even though all the people are hanging on his every word. I love the way Luke writes that. They're on the edge of couch. Edges of their seats. Just hanging on
1: Jesus' every word.
0: Now I think when we're reading this, what we have to understand about this part of the story is that Jesus doesn't drive out the thieves in the temple just because they're selling some trinkets for profit. It's not the issue. We can't get confused and translate our own kind of issues with the church uh, into the text, okay? Nothing wrong with having a ministry budget, nothing wrong with churches and ministries collecting offerings, and honestly, I don't think there's anything wrong with selling any kind of trinkets. You could sell hats, bracelets, t-shirts, Whatever. Not a big deal. Use the money for a good purpose, right? All those things are fine. He's not a problem with that. It's not the problem here. The problem here um, in in what we're reading would take, could take a lot of study. It's a fascinating study. So I encourage you guys to maybe get some good commentary on this book. Uh, I can recommend a few. Shoot me a text. Leave a message on Facebook. Happy to send you some recommendations. It's a fascinating study if you do it. The problem that's happening here is it's wrapped up in the sacrificial system of Israel. Long story short, and just kind of trying to put the cookies on a shelf that we can all access well, um, Israel had been commanded by God throughout the centuries to obediently offer up bloody sacrifices, right? And they were to do that in faith, trusting that God would forgive their sins as they obeyed Him in faith. And as they did that, they were to look forward to the coming Savior. That day is now, right? On this day in the text. Jesus, the Savior, is here.
1: He's about to be sacrificed on a cross. They should have gotten it. They didn't. In this sacrificial system, not everyone in Israel um, had direct access
0: to sheep, goats, doves, grain. Any of those things to offer sacrifice. How many of you here raise goats.
1: Joe and Eileen. So, Joe and Eileen are lovely, God-honoring Christian people.
0: So Joe and Eileen were able to get 20 bucks a goat on Fair Market. Well, let's say we even say, I don't know, add an extra 10 bucks to that just so you can help cover some grain or whatever. Not a big deal. The rest of us would be going to Joe and Eileen and say, can we buy some goats so we can offer the goat for the sacrifice so That my sins can be forgiven. It would seem like fair market value was 20 bucks, add 10 bucks extra, no big deal.
1: But Joe and Eileen start selling for 75 bucks instead. That's a problem. Right? We would all agree that's a problem. That's what was taking place
0: here in the text. Many of the people in Israel needed to purchase those items. And the merchants had set up shop inside the temple. Didn't matter where they set up necessarily although that was a big issue, they had set up in the temple and they had driven up the cost of these items so that they could make exorbitant amounts of profit. They were literally living lavishly on the sacrificial system of of Israel. They were making it hard for poor people to come close to God. That's what they were doing. So you think about Jesus and if you read the other, the other accounts of the story in the Gospels, it even seems like there's one point where Jesus walks in, sees this, takes a seat, grabs some rope, and starts weaving together a whip. That, when I, whenever I read that and contemplate that, I think about, man, Jesus felt so much anger over what was taking place that He had the wherewithal to sit down and weave a whip before taking
1: that whip to the backsides of all these merchants and flipping tables. These people had turned salvation into a personal get-rich-quick scheme. And the poor, and the weak, and the needy, the helpless, the defenseless, Those who did not have, they were suffering because of it. And all throughout Scriptures, it's easy to see that God is the protector of the weak. And in Jesus, in these moments, we see His absolute, I think, just in human form, His unadulterated, righteous anger. The temple was no longer a house of prayer. It was a den of thieves. And what Jesus did, and I love this, he, he drove them out, and then what did He immediately start doing? He restored faithful biblical preaching. There are even preachers today who would say that preaching does no good.
0: It drives me crazy because it's an indication to me that that person has, has lost hope in the power of the preached word. And here you have Jesus doing exactly that. Restoring faithful biblical preaching. And I would say that all throughout church history, I've been doing church history courses for the last
1: number of weeks. Every time you see faithful biblical preaching restored, um, a revolution basically takes place, especially as the Spirit opens people's hearts to hear it.
0: In our context today, um, You don't have to look too far to find horror stories. The same thing's happening today in our churches. It may not look like somebody sitting there selling trinkets or selling sacrificial pieces. But you don't have to look far to see people turning salvation into a get-rich-quick scheme. And this has just been some of my own experience over the past few weeks that I'm just going to speak to generally. This has not just been the past few weeks, but I would say over the years as I've followed Jesus, this has been some of my experience. The things that get under my skin. And ministers, all right, living in lavish wealth on the backs of the poor, and the weak, and the needy. It drives me nuts. Pastors and church leaders covering up untold amounts of sexual, spiritual abuse in
1: the church. Doing that while protecting their inner circle. Why? So they can continue making a buck.
0: So-called spiritual leaders publicly excommunicating abused women and children
1: for not reconciling with their abusive men. That's a shame. Ministry staff in
0: churches being given under-the-table hush money to cover up the insidious behavior of weak little men who love the attention that they get from their pulpits and their book sales and their public platforms. I think if Jesus rolled in here today,
1: I think he would say, drive out those thieves among you make my house a house of prayer again. I want to add, finally, if I could speak personally to that and name names, I would. Sometimes I don't think it'd be wrong. But I'll leave it there. Trust that God is the God of justice and so whatever part you and I have to play in that and we trust,
0: that we trust His Spirit. So if Jesus rolled in here today, I think those are the three things He would say. Don't be silent, understand the cost of peace, drive out the thieves among you. Um, just by way of trying to wrap up and make a, a few like, minor application points, that I, I hope it may be helpful. I, I don't know where you're at when you walked in, when you're thinking about the whole don't remain silent piece. Um, I don't know if we all need to become that dude in the gym or not.
1: But I do think there's a number of things that can cause us to be silent in our praise and worship, right? And I think it typically
0: revolves around not experiencing the power of Jesus in your life. But the religious leaders in our text, when you go back to that and you think about that, they they couldn't fathom praising and worshiping Jesus. Why? Because they had rejected His obvious power and authority over them. They, They refused to accept Him as King of Kings. They refused to accept Him as Lord of Lords, So I don't know in your life where you are refusing to accept Him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and not just Savior. Because there is a submission aspect to that, where you have to acknowledge His authority and His power, and you have to, in repentance, continue to turn away from those things which do not honor and worship Him. I don't know where that's at for you. It could be something as simple as uh, you're harboring bitterness and unforgiveness towards somebody. Maybe there's somebody that you need to go reconcile with that you hurt. Um, or maybe it's just simply some, some kind of um, addiction in your life that you keep turning back to. Some sinful pattern that you go back to. Or maybe it's just simply your cold-heartedness towards God's Word and you haven't stuck your nose in it lately. Now that sounds harsh, but... I hear people say, well, I don't get much out of my Bible reading. Inside, I just know. Like, Well, that means your heart's cold. It means your heart's dead. What do you think you need to do in those moments but repent
1: and ask God to help? Submit and surrender to his kingship over your life? Quit making excuses for that, maybe?
0: All I know is this, the barrier between you living a life that worships and praises God and refuses to remain silent, the barrier that's there typically is disobedience and sin. Sometimes that disobedience and sin can be attached to
1: hurt and wounds you
0: receive from somebody.
1: Maybe my prayer is that God would reveal the power and the authority
0: and and the victory of King Jesus to you in the cross and the empty tomb that in the midst of that, you, you might come to a place where you would praise and worship Him with
1: reckless abandon. Like your favorite team just got the winning score. You didn't expect it to come. In regards to the cost of peace, um, do you understand the cost of peace?
0: you understand what it took to
1: provide that peace between you and God? are
0: you spiritually blind? The weird thing about spiritually blind people is they don't know they're spiritually blind. Physically blind people know they're physically blind. Spiritually blind people
1: don't know that. The religious leaders would have told you they had the white hats on, but they really didn't. They had the black hats on. What do you do? (laughs) My prayer, because the only hope that you and I have for spiritual blindness is A power of the Spirit. Because only the Holy Spirit can reveal to you that you are spiritually
0: blind. He can do that through His Word. He can do that through a preacher in a pulpit. You can do that through a friend of yours who says, hey, you're blind. Concerned for you. I would not want you to live far from the Lord, cold-hearted towards Him, spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, spiritually lame, spiritually imprisoned, actually spiritually dead. My prayer is that the Spirit would reveal to you if that's you, Reveal to you the depth of that sin. Reveal to you the vastness of God's holiness. Reveal to you the horror of the cross. Reveal to you the victory of the empty tomb. Reveal to you the hope of heaven. So that in the midst of that, you might truly see, truly understand the cost of peace that was won for you, purchased for you at the cross. Calvary. And that you might lay hold of that salvation by faith. <coughs> and that as you do that, you would become a new person whose heart now beats
1: after God. <clears throat> and that final point, as you think about driving out thieves, I, I don't think there's anybody in this room that fits the category of the
0: thief. I could be wrong, because I, I don't know your hearts, I don't know all your stories, so that, it's possible that maybe you are and maybe you need a sharp warning. Um, not only does Jesus drive out thieves,
1: um, but He's fine chewing up the wicked between His teeth. So, if you need that warning, there it is. I think more so, though, probably the vast majority of us in
0: this room, if not all of us, I would assume you, you maybe have found yourself wounded uh, or you find yourself cynical or you find yourself bitter or angry, hesitant to trust Jesus or His church because of some kind of ungodly thief dressed up in the lipstick of a spiritual leader. My prayer, uh,
1: my prayer for you, if that's you, is that the Spirit would remind you that justice has been served at the cross.
0: Now, the crazy thing in the midst of that is that justice has been served at the cross for even the worst of sinners. So that means the worst of abusers who then, if they repent, <coughs> can attain the same salvation by faith, by grace through faith, that you and I have. But justice will ultimately be served upon the
1: unrepentant for all of eternity. And I think in that you can find comfort in healing and healing hope. God is the defender of the weak. God is the one who steps in front of the vulnerable and surrounds the helpless and the poor. <coughs> He'll fight on your behalf if that's you. He also offers healing and strength to those who are wounded and weak. Never fail you, never leave you, never forsake you. I hope in my prayer is that as you've listened, as you've heard that the Spirit has spoken to you.
0: and As I said earlier, that in one sense, your heart's been open. And maybe the Lord, in His own way, the power of His Spirit, making an entry
1: into your heart to do the work that needs to be done. Amen? Pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Pray, God, as we enter now into final moments of worship that You would be with us. You would speak to us, or that you would encourage and strengthen and rebuke and fill us, draw us to the foot
0: of that cross. Help us to hear you in these closing moments. God, we love you.